Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, December 15th, 2020 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, here to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Mr. Frank Green. To say Frank has had a successful career would be an incredible understatement. He is one of the most in-demand lead trumpet players in New York City. Frank is currently the lead trumpet player for the Cal Basie Band. His most visible gig was likely the three years he spent as the lead trumpet in the CBS Orchestra for The Late Show with David Letterman. Frank and I have known each other for over 30 years since we were both students at the University of North Texas where I was a graduate student in music education and where he played lead trumpet in the famed One O'Clock Lab Band. At age 21, Frank was recruited to play with the Woody Herman Orchestra. He later went on to spend five years playing lead trumpet with Maynard Ferguson's big band. Frank plays lead trumpet and has recorded with the Christian McBride big band, the Jimmy Heath band, Bob Mincer, Frank Foster, the Nicholas Payton Big Band, the Frank West Nonette, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, the Dizzy Gillespie All-Star Big Band, the Clark Terry Big Band, and the Roy Hargrove Big Band, just for starters. His other projects have included recordings with Christina Aguilera, Kevin Spacey, Queen Latifah, Vanessa Williams, Stevie Wonder, Bono, Miley Cyrus, and soundtracks for Netflix and NFL films. Most importantly to me, I am proud and happy to call Frank a friend. 
Hello, Frank. It's great to talk with you. How are you doing? You know, I'm not doing too bad. It's actually kind of a beautiful day here today, and I hope it is for you in New York as well. Same here. Yeah, we got the sun came out today for a change. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> you you certainly have had a wonderful career. Would you reflect oh, on you. some of the more memorable experiences of your career? Wow. I mean, at the risk of sounding a little, I don't know, immodest or something, I, it's been it's been really great. I mean. Getting to hang out with Maynard Ferguson on the bus all those years, getting to uh, meet Woody Herman, getting to have my dad meet John Williams and chat with him, things like that really come to mind. Getting to play at the Hollywood Bowl uh, for the first time, getting to hang out with uh, Bill Cosby before we, you know, before we found out some of the things we found out. But things like that, you know, having, you know, really good friends in the business, you know, I just got to wish Randy Brecker a happy birthday and, you know, hang out, chat with him a bit, you know, not, not too long ago. It was, you know, it's kind of been nice to be able to be in the circle of people that we looked up to in college, you know, to be able to come to New York and sort of join that circle of people and then welcoming us into those circles is a really cool thing. And so, you know, I, I can't say that I thought it would ever happen that I'd go to Clark Terry's house for dinner like every week, but you know, it's been, that's been a you know nice thing. So I'd say it's hard to pinpoint one thing, but those are all really nice things. Well, sure. I mean, it would be difficult. I'm sure for you to, uh, to choose just just one. You've had so many wonderful experiences. Well, you know, uh, of course, COVID has really kind of put a downer on on the mu on the music world. But uh, how have you been occupying your time during the the sh recent shutdown? Well, I've been trying to do a bit of writing. I'm going, I'm putting myself a little bit of an arbitrary shift as well because it's been kind of needed. But when you're playing all the time, you just kind of have to be kind of careful but with this time off I've been able to kind of let this amateurship that's been wanting to happen kind of happens it's not I wouldn't call it a change but I think as we get older you know our teeth move and our, our bodies change and so it's been kind of nice to be able to have time to do that but um moreover I've been kind of dealing with something for the past I guess maybe my wife would say five years or so where you know what happens for me is I get students come to me after they've been to the university and they and the question is always the same I've gone to school, I have my degree, I have my performance degree or whatever, and I'm not working. Why am I not working? You know, I've got this degree that says I'm, I got a jazz performance degree, why am I not jazz performing? <laughs> so I've had to sit down and kind of think about, you know, some of the reasons and talk to students and kind of come up with some ideas about what I see. And so I've mostly been doing a lot of writing to try to create solutions for some of these problems that I've had. Um, from students, try to help see if I can help some students happen to see them one on one because there's just not you know, time to see everybody one on one. So I thought that writing might be a good way to do that. So I've been doing a lot of that on this break. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, is there anything going on in New York musically, or is everyone pretty much staying locked down? Well, I know my my friends that do um, Saturday Night Live. I think they're they're doing it and they're they're spacing out so the horns are in a different room, spread out pretty far apart. Some of the guys are on stage and they're kind of spread out a bit, but most like Broadway shows. And um, I did um, a little bit of studio work, which is additional stuff from, from something I did for a movie that's coming out. But, you know, there's not been really any steady work yet because, you know, most of what we do, we need to be around other people. And we have to play an instrument that spits, puts, uh, you know, germy bits in the air, I guess, according to the CDC. So. 
you know, we've been kind of just having to kind of be on hold. You know, that's why I was talking earlier about the idea that, you know, the uh, the idea of a vaccine is so exciting to us. It's like, you know, saying having a uh, the you know the the owner puts a biscuit on the dog's nose and just says wait, <laughs> wait, and, and the dog goes a little crazy having to wait for this this treat. You know, so I've, we're kind of in that kind of a, a mode where we're kind of really you know a bit of anxiety kind of because we're just ready to go back to work. You know? Sure. I, 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 I can relate. I mean, it's like uh, I'm in a similar situation with various community bands that I, I direct. You know, everybody's really chomping. They want to get together. They want to play. They, you know, they want to uh, socialize. They want to make music. They want to, you know, perform for audiences. And and I've uh, constantly, every, you know, every time something new comes out, about aerosol studies or whatnot, yeah. I, I have to forward that and say, look, you know, it just isn't safe. I mean, it's like I'm not uh, I'm not doing band at the university this semester. Actually, I won't be this year, I'm sure, just simply because my band room is not large enough to even attempt to uh, socially distance safely, uh, let alone deal with you know, the aerosols and, and, and from playing, but also talking because in my, you know, in my uh, arena, music is, is as much a, a social as it is musical experience. Oh, and, for sure. You know, I think so that these, people assume, yeah, they miss out on that part of the social. Oh yeah. And, and especially I think like, cause a lot of my band, both of my, the concert bands that I direct, have a lot of older people. I mean, I've got people in their 80s that play in, in both those groups. And one group is exclusively for older adults, mm -hmm. uh, my New Horizons band. And of course, they would be right in the wheelhouse of the most vulnerable to mm, yeah, the virus. Yeah. So it's been difficult, yeah. but, uh, uh, you know, to stay away from that. So, yeah, hopefully the... Yeah vaccine will get and we'll be able to get back at it by next fall because yeah, i think you and i talked about this over the years anyway there's just this the social aspect and the getting along we were talking you know a lot long ago previously about about how great it was that we were all so close together in school that you know it wasn't just go to school take your classes play in the big banner or the small groups or in chamber ensemble and just go back to your uh, dormitory or whatever we actually we, we knew each other i know it's it makes me think like, you know, I don't know if you know Frank Foster, but Frank Foster uh, is a writer that used to write for the Count Basie Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to play in his big band, you know, because he passed away a few years ago. And one of the things we'd have a noon rehearsal, we wouldn't play our first note until about 120, 130, because, you know, guys would kind of come in in a relaxed way and, and we'd chit and chit chat and catch up and then we'd have rehearsal. And it was, it made the band a bit more cohesive and it was just a lot more fun. Clark Terry was the same way. It was a lot more social than you might think. Roy Hargrove, same thing. It was more social than you might think. It's not just take your horn out, play and show off. It's, you know, by that time you played your first note, everyone kind of chatted with each other and asked your family, you know, how's things going? How you doing? You know, we got a lot of that in before we played one note. It was really nice. And I feel like that can be a bit lacking now. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of hope, we, like, I'm glad you're saying that you're doing that with, with your groups because it's so, I think it's so important to remember that we're still just a bunch of people, you know, we're not machines, we're not machines just yet, you know? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's like I, you're you're spot on. I one of the things I often relay to my uh, like my concert band, if especially the 
students that start to kind of get a little a little too uptight, you know, about making mistakes or, or you know, trying to get a particular area of passage correct. And I, I, I have to say, look, just relax. Remember, mm -hmm. we play music. We don't suffer music. We don't toil <laughs> music. We don't slave music. Mm -hmm. We play. It's supposed mm -hmm. to be fun. Mm -hmm. You know, and if it isn't fun, if you're not having fun in my band, I want you to let me know and I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure you do have fun. Right. You know, so yeah, sounds, yeah. sounds really cool. And then it, it works it that way fun. on the professional level too. Well, not every, not every situation, obviously, but you know, yeah. those, those come to mind, you know, Bob Minzer's band, same way the guys, by the time, you know, Bob counts out the first tune, everyone's had a chance to catch up and chat and even bob will sit and just chat with you before we play so you know i feel like as people see, see maybe see it as a waste of the time but i think it depends on where you come from like you and i come from a very similar mentality but um you know it's, it's just really great to be able to you know have that, that kind of feeling so you're much more relaxed when you first start playing it's great sure sure you know. well i know you came out with your books uh brass concepts and the quiet mind would you share with my listeners listeners a bit about each of these books and and any follow-ups that you're working on? Well, the Brass Concepts book, I started writing initially when I was at Maynard's band because we would um, do clinics and people would forget what we talked about when I saw them the next time. So I decided to write a book called Brass Concepts. And then since then, I've really kind of not really promoted that book that much because I'm more focused on coaching and things like that now. So um the quiet mind is basically, you know, it's such a simple concept. You know, if you want to have the ability to play more of a peak performance level, you need to kind of have a quiet mind because if you have a lot of noise going on, you know, it just gets in the way of, of you playing music the way you're supposed to play it. But it's a simple concept, but how do you quiet your mind? It's like telling someone, you know, just keep your mind quiet. If you ever tried to do that, it's really difficult to do. And so um, what I decided to do was write a book to talk about what tends to make a person's mind noisy based on my experience working with people over the I don't know, past 35 years of working with students. Um, you know, in a, in a, when they come to you and go, hey, I hear you on this band, I heard you on this band, I heard you in this situation. How did you not freak out? Like my first week on uh, television on David Letterman, they said, did you have rehearsal and stuff like that? And I said, no, I mean, a lot of that gig was Paul, Paul would call a chart if there was a chart and you just sight read it on TV. And that was just how it was. And so they would, people would go, how did you not get nervous? And so some of the answers to those questions I decided to put into this book, uh, The Quiet Mind, so that people can have access to it, not, not just for me saying to them one time, they can come back to it and kind of understand which part refers to them and it might change. And so what parts refer to them so they can kind of have an aid to kind of make it so they can kind of get out of their own way or we can get out of our own way. And uh, so the only one I'm working on this new is a book right now called The Jazz Zen, Z-E-N. It's basically a book of um, what I consider in the same line of thinking, useful, useful quotes put in this in a, in a one, one shot, one stop shop kind of thing where, um, you know, because of talking to Maynard Ferguson, talking to David Letterman over the years, speaking with different people. I mean, listening to Taylor Swift talk on the elevator, having conversations with Tom Hanks. It was a really cool thing to be able to be at Letterman because backstage you wind up talking to a lot of these people that you would not normally speak to or even see. You know, having a relationship with Renee Fleming just from her being on the show. It's really, it's kind of it's kind of a cool thing. So I decided to put a lot of these things that I learned from Clark Terry and Frank West and 
and um, people of that nature into a book pertaining to things that students tend to ask me about. And that book is called The Jazz Zen. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, that'll, that'll, that'll be out. Actually, that probably will be out by the time this airs. So. But both Very books cool. will be out. So. You know, it's been fun. I think I'm working on some other things, but that's, those are the newest two things. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, you, you know, you've already made mention of it, and I also see from your website that you do a good deal of coaching uh, students. Would you uh, share with my audience what you are finding are the greatest needs of young players today? And what do you find yourself talking about with younger players? I think the biggest challenge, you, you know, you and I, once again, I've talked about this before too, is just understanding the, the fundamental between, you know, are you going to college as a vocational situation or are you looking at it from a theoretical point of view? I think now, I think the onus is on schools to be a bit more vocational minded, maybe a bit more boutique minded, only because students are asking, you know, questions like, you know, and I encourage them to ask this fundamental question for what I want to do, show me your successful students. Now, you know, you and I went to North Texas State at the time before it was UNT. It was pretty simple to see where their successful graduates were going, right? Right. And so if you're going to be spending the kind of money you need to spend to go to college nowadays, because you got, when we were in school, if you were in state tuition, it was, my dad laughed at how cheap it was. You know, we were, you know, we, if you look at how much other, other schools are, it was super, but now it's not really that way. College can be very expensive. And so I always say to students, look, you have to understand if you have something you know you want to do and you're going to school for that, it's kind of on you as a consumer to not just assume, take a look at, at the track record of your school. Well, you know, we both know a lot of schools don't necessarily have a great track record for sending students into certain fields, yet they graduate them into, the, into those fields. And I think as students start to kind of do the math and go, you know what, I need to be able to kind of make a little better decisions. Or if they can't make a better decision, you know, they can have people like me around that can maybe fill in the blanks or fill in the gaps from what school teaches and what is kind of happening on the outside world. I feel like the thing that's lacking is, I mean, mean, I'll I'll just put it out there. A lot of teachers that I went to college with that have programs that bring people in have not, my wife always shakes her head. It's like, why is it we have all these teachers that, you know, that don't bring you in to speak to their students. And I, I just said, I don't know, there, there's, a, there, there's a myriad of possible reasons, but, you know, I, I shouldn't have to get to them after they've graduated from schools, especially schools that my friends teach at. When they get to New York or they've been to LA or they're trying to figure out what to do with themselves or trying to get a gig with a Broadway show tour. Like I did a Broadway show tour for a year before I lived in New York. just because I wanted to see if I really could do Broadway for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think, you know, so in trying to work with them, the biggest thing I might say, besides making a better, being a little bit better consumer of your education, is to understand the nature of the intangibles. Because I think this COVID has shown us that lots of people can play. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear people are putting videos up every five seconds of how great they can play in a tune. They can play a high note. They can play a low note. They can play slow. They can play fast. They can play all kinds of different things, right? So the question is, why do you not see these people working? And I, and I think the biggest fundamental reason is not their talent. It's not their, it's the understanding of the intangibles. And the intangibles is what I, is what my coaching is all about. It's, it's helping students understand the intangibles that make it so that you work. So that it's, so that some people might say, well, this guy plays as good as this guy. Why is that guy doing this all the time? Well, if you don't understand what the intangibles are, it's going to really, you know, inhibit your ability to make a living. 
And so that's, that's what I find myself teaching. And I don't know if universities can teach that because if you're not out having to do it all the time in that regard, like I, I can't tell someone how to go into the university system. I just, cause I just don't do it. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. so that's something that a teacher at a university level, if that's what you wanted to do, I would, I wouldn't try to coach a person to become a teacher. I would direct them to you or someone who has a really good idea, just like mm-hmm. as you do, how to, how to, how to do well in that environment, you know? Yeah, you know, it sounds like yeah. It it I I I'm just kind of chuckling to myself because it sounds to me like you and I are so much on a similar wavelength. It's like when I would get a new student in for advising, brand spanking new freshman, mm-hmm. and of course the one of the the first questions you ask is, well, have you decided on a major? And 99 and 9 tenths percent of the time, no. I, they don't have any idea what they what they want to major in. And I said, well, that's okay. I says, that's okay. Because no one says you have to have your mind made up about what you want to do the rest of your life mm-hmm. when you're 18 years old, number one. And I says, and number two, the purpose of coming to the university is for you to try and new things and to explore. I said, so I'm going to pick a major for you. And of course they start squirming about that point. (laughs) And I say, your major is going to be called deciding Mm -hmm. and your minor is going to be self-discovery. And I says, and we're going to choose some classes for you to kind of get you started on that major. And then, I, then, you know, I said, well, they ask the question, they'll ask the question, well, I, I'm not sure what I should study. And I say, and I say, what do you dream about? What do you dream about? What do you see yourself wanting to do? And I will help you and guide you toward what I think your academic preparation will be towards realizing your dream. You know, I think that sometimes I've discovered that what you're talking about, that when students say they don't know what they want to do, my, my actual observation is that's not quite true. They almost always know what they want to do. I think you've discovered that too. They have a pretty good idea of the direction, maybe not the, spec- you know, the specificities of it because they just haven't been in it to know what those things are yet, but they kind of fundamentally know what they dream about. Like you said, they, they rarely will they go, I don't know anything. They, they kind of know what they want to do. And they, sometimes they just either feel like they won't be able to do it or they don't know any, anyone else who's never done it which kind of is that onus is on them it's kind of our responsibility to find people who are doing what we want to do fair enough but um but i think a lot of it's just like they've not given been given permission to think it's okay oh you're so right i I, i'll just share one more quick story with you because the interview is really about you not me but it this is so so much on to what you're you're talking about i had a student one time and i says what do you dream about and he said Mm -hmm. i want to work in outer space uh, yes. And I had to yeah. hold in my inner chuckle while I was thinking, well, okay, Captain Kirk, let's see what we can find. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I went to my, I have uh, had access to all of these government documents about employment projections and what you had to do for certain jobs and so forth. And we looked it up and I said, wow, here it is, is a space station mechanic. Mm-hmm. And it went through and talked about all the various things one would have. Now, this is a job that doesn't even exist yet, except theoretically. And I said, see, you can still look to the future and realize your dream. 
It, and yeah. I think you're absolutely right. They do know, but sometimes they don't know how to articulate how to get there. Well, that's what they need to ask. I mean, I mean, you know, when we were younger, we had, you know, I'm so thankful that we had uh, Don Jacoby. I know he was not part of their normal curriculum, but for many of us, you know, he's the kind of guy that was, you know, vocational-wise, he's, he did what we wanted to do. So the cool thing about Don Jacoby is he would have a party around Thanksgiving time, and I got to meet, like, Bobby Shue and Chuck Finley and, and Dalton Smith and Gary Grant. I got to meet those guys and begin having relationships with them where I can ask them questions. Even though I might never do what they do or live where they live, having that access to information was so vital. And that's what I mean. I'm always a bit baffled why, you know, even, I hate to say this, even our college, North Texas, they'll use an image of me or Tom, um, Tom alone, mm -hmm. on, 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 a, on a brochure. Yet, I don't, I don't, I never, I've, I've only been there one time to speak to the students. Mm -hmm. Can you believe that? I mean, they've only brought me in one time. Now, wow. they bring people in, we know that, they have a jazz lecture series, but there's just some sort of disconnect. I know a lot of times schools are bringing in other teachers and I, and I get the reasons for that. You know, I, I do. And I, I don't necessarily know that's the best thing for the students. And so, but I, you know, I think we all kind of get why they might do that. And fair enough, you know, you gotta, you gotta take care of what you gotta take care of. But at the sure. end of the day, I think it's up to the students to say, look, I understand why you might do that, but we really need to get Bob Minster in here for some writing things. We need to get Allison Balsam in here because she can, you know, inspire women brass players in ways, or maybe Tina Helseth, or we need to get, you know, people at that, if we can afford it, we need to get people like that into mm -hmm. our school, you know, if they're, maybe they're around, they're close by, we can fly them in from a close, you know, close de destination from where we are. Um, something, because I think at the end of the day, the students are going to start asking these hard questions of the universities, which is, I'm paying you a lot of money. I don't, now that I know that, I, you know, what I know now, I see that you're able to give me a much different education than I'm getting. So I don't want to keep spending my money here. I'm not going to get it. So I need to be able to ask you for these modifications. Like, you know, I need to be able to know that the people that we that we need to look to for, you know, Maurice Andre, you know, if we have access to Maurice Andre and he's in town, he's in Dallas, why is he not here? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. And so, you know, especially if he's, if he's, you know, so, you know, if you have to, you know, you can, you can get all kinds of, you can get cheap airline tickets nowadays. So it's not really, it's not really a huge reason not to. So I feel like connectivity, like you and I have been talking about, connectivity to people is also one of the intangibles. Learning how to be around other people. I think if, you, if you're a great player, but nobody wants to be around you, you're going to find it hard to work. But you may not even know why nobody wants to work with you. Right. And that's right. the kind of thing that someone who's not maybe in the university system can tell you because they're having to deal with that, not in a theoretical sense. They literally are in the studio today. Mm -hmm. dealing with a person who is not easy to deal with and they can say hey you're a nice kid you know if you come to new york we need someone like you that can play play well like you but has a nice personality because there are three or four guys in town that we use that that don't really play that much better than you but you're so much easier to work with that we can probably plug you into this you know a broadway show or things like that pretty quickly and in new york that's kind of what happens Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. how, how I, you know you but you can't learn that at, at the right at the school because none of the teachers are doing broadway shows in new york right right and so there's that there's that lack of connection so you know you have a student that wants to sit dead set on trying to you know i don't know get on a tv show well you 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 can pick up the phone and call me i can talk to them because mm -hmm. we have a because we have a relationship and yeah. I think that's what's lacking within the university system that is going to have to change because students are becoming better consumers. So. Yeah, that's well, really sage advice. It's really excellent. Um, 
Well, that's, you that's know, what you and I have been talking about, connectivity and relationships. Well, yes, and, and I, I kind of wanted to follow up. I did notice uh, your recent participation in the International Trumpet Guild's uh, Listen and Learn series, and I watched oh, yeah. the video that you did, thought it was an excellent video. Are you, uh, are you anticipating doing more with ITG? I just, I think that traditionally the kind of things, the kind of ways that I teach are not what people might expect from me. I think that's part of the hard part is that um, people think uh, Frank's going to do a, a clinic or a lecture, whatever you want to call it. And um, like, for instance, I did one at, um, in our Texas for, but it was for the trumpet, um, the trumpet competition, mm -hmm. the IA, international trumpet competition. And so, um, and so NTC, right? National Trumpet Competition. And I did a, a talk at Kenton Hall, which I guess is called something else now. Have you heard about this? They made a change to the Kenton Hall. Oh, yes, yes. I read yeah, about that. Boy. As times are changing, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but, um, and so I said, um, you know, I said, my friend said, I heard it went pretty well. And I, and I, I, I said, okay, I, I don't really know how, how well it would be. I'm just giving a normal, but it feels to me like a normal, you know, workshop talk, whatever. He said, well, the room was full. I remember that. I remember the room was actually standing room only, which kind of felt pretty good. He said, the average, you know, lecture has about 25 people. You had like 300 people. Ah. And so, but what it really tells me is that it's not really about me. It's, it's more about this information. So I think that if people are used to thinking about me or some other lead player, they're thinking like a lot of my private students, which is why I don't teach private students, is they just want to play a high note. And so teachers say, well, I want to play a high F. And so the first thing I was, Ask them was what context do you want to play a high F in? And they look at me like, what do you mean? In what context? It's like, well, the way you're going to play a high F on like, you know, I don't know, a, a Broadway show like On Your Feet, you know, or um, or, or a Broadway show, like maybe a Broadway show like April in Paris, be, that's going to be quite different. If you're going to play in the studio or if you're going to play loud in a big band, they're going to be, well, if you're going to play in a brass quintet, you're going to play on piccolo trumpet, it's going to be, they're going to be different approaches to playing that note. So I kind of need to know what, and I, that's when you realize they have no idea. They just, it's not even about music when they ask a question like that. Right. Because they, if it's about music, they'd, they'd have a context for you. But that's when you realize it's not about music. It's about some ego or some other thing that it's not about music. And so it's strange to me that it's strange to them that I ask them that question. Uh-huh. Yeah. What context. Because they're thinking, you're thinking context. It's like, oh, but once again, that's an intangible. Right. You know, because I think most guys see you, they see your lead player. They think of you as probably a one-dimensional person, but if you play in a lot of different contexts, you can't possibly be one-dimensional, but they don't know that because they don't understand the intangibles. Right. Right. And and that's and that's that is a big deal. I mean, even you know, we could talk for hours about, mm. you know, you don't play Mozart the same way you play Stravinsky, that you yep. play Kenton, or you play, you know, you don't play Kenton the way you play Basie. And vice versa, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yep. And and the context is 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 everything. I I, I think I'm a hundred percent with you there. That's great. Well, so, I yeah. I have kind of a mundane question, and it's it's really my own, out of my own personal interest, but will be as well to others. Tell us a little bit about your daily routine as applied to the trumpet. What kind of things do you practice every day? Well, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in a, an interesting position because I know a lot of guys will say, you know, if you're going to go back out and, and do, you know, a, a tour with, uh, with a bassy band, you have to kind of get yourself ramped up for that. And my wife will kind of laugh when she hears that because she hears me clunk through exercises and stuff every day. And so I tell people, you know, I, 
I've been playing lead trumpet for so long now that I kind of have muscle memory for it. And so I might play like kind of loud for maybe two minutes the night before, and that's pretty much I'm kind of ready to go. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's and, you know, I, I don't, I would never suggest a student do that, but you know, I, you know, I spent a lot of years playing lead trumpet, but you know, five and a half years on Manners Band definitely teaches your, your best, kind of conditions your muscle memory. So I don't really spend a lot of time having to work in the upper register very much anymore because I've kind of already paid my upper register dues, so to speak. But so, you know, now, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll maybe play through some excerpts just for fun. I'll never do that for work, but it's kind of a different kind of challenge. And I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll do a lot more listening. I'm doing a whole lot more listening than I've done before just because there's just more time. Right? But, mm-hmm. um, you know, mostly just, I hate to say to this point, just kind of make, making sure you know, here, I'll, I'll make, I'll put it this way. When I was younger, I remember I really wanted to play professional racquetball. And um, that's what I really wanted to do. When I went to college, I was still playing about three hours of racquetball per day. And I really wanted to do that. But this, this sport sort of went away. But I remember Marty Hogan, who was like the John Coltrane of racquetball. He said, when he practiced, I remember I called him on the phone. And he answered the phone. I was shocked. It's like, I called Miles Davis on the phone. And they answered. And I asked him, I asked him the same question. What do you practice at your level? What do you practice? He said, whatever I sucked at during the last competition i make up routines and i practice that right and then i i find out come later talk to bill watchers did a clinic he said the exact same thing whatever i kind of struggled with last time i played that's what i practice mm-hmm. and then ironically i've heard dave stall say the same thing i've heard other musicians say the same thing that i've all and are all at a pretty high level and i kind of started to think okay you know there's there's got to be something to this math and so i feel like if i work on anything at all it's like Whatever I feel like I really struggle with or I kind of didn't play very well, I'll, I'll work on, on exercises around that. You know, I, I chuckle only because I think Herbert L. Clark says the exact same thing in his book when he says, don't waste time practicing things that you already play well. Hmm. Work, on the, work on the keys, work on the things that you don't do well. <laughs> I think, and the cool thing about it is that I think that's the nice thing about playing all the time with great players is that, you know, I don't have to try to guess what those things are. At the college level, I'd have to kind of guess because I don't have enough experience to know if it's a weakness or not. You know what I mean? You don't have enough playing experience. You kind of, you kind of find your niche as you make the living. That's another intangible I teach students is kind of understanding the concept of, um, you know, I, I, t- I was at North Texas and I, and I said something, I know it's not a popular thing, but, I tell students all the time, don't be well-rounded. And they all look at me like I'm, I just said something in Klingon. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, talk about intangibles. And I said to them, well, it's not that you shouldn't be well-rounded, but don't focus on being well-rounded. And they, and they still don't get it. I said, look, people don't buy that way. You know what I mean, when someone's looking for a trumpet player, here's what I hear. Like when a contractor is going to have a new show in New York, for instance, right? Or someone's looking to hire somebody, they'll say, I need a lead trumpet player that can play Latin music, or I need a lead trumpet player that can play big band, or I need a lead trumpet player with a but with a but you know classically trained, so he's not not a jazz guy, but a lead player. They're looking for a lead player that can. But first of all, it's a lead player. They're not looking for a trumpet player, or they're saying like I need a, I need a jazz player that has you know good classical technique, or I need a jazz player that's really raw that can play really well. I need a jazz player that, and I realized that in college is that that we were so many of us that if you try to be well-rounded, you'd get lost in the shuffle because you're never as good as any one guy is at the one thing they do. That makes sense? Yes. And so you can kind of 
shoot yourself in the foot. And so I realized you should kind of pick the thing that you do the best and then expand from there. So I always talk about this idea with contracting to expand. It's like if you're in the bottom of the pool and you want to get to the top, you have to first contract to, to, to explode to the top. You can't just jump to the top from a standing position. See what I'm saying? And so in a similar vein, I think it's important to understand that, you know, especially making a living, you kind of have to have, have a thing that you do that people know what you do so they can hire you for that. You know, because, you know, we know that Coca-Cola can take the rust off of a, off of a penny or, you know, whatever, the uh, oxidation off of a penny, but we don't buy it for that. Right. And so consequently, Coke doesn't advertise itself as that. Yeah. <laughs> See what I'm saying? They, they know that. Yeah, they, exactly. They know, has, they know it can probably clean your toilet as well, but they don't, you know, they, they just offer, they just advertise themselves as a nice, wonderful soft drink. Mm-hmm. And I think, cause that's how people buy things. And I think if you look at it and that's what I mean by, you know, you learn, you learn to be well-rounded from the university because that's what it's, that's, what's great. You can learn what you're good at, what you're not good at. You can make a bunch of mistakes that won't follow you into your professional life per se, but the, the connectivity that schools need to players that are playing all the time is that I'm, I'm training and learning and developing and becoming who I am, but I also need to understand where I'm going. And so I need to be able to talk to people who are out there doing things right now in the world right now so I can see what the changes are, what's happening. And so I think the two need to come together maybe more than ever before. So that's, that's excellent advice. I think that's excellent. Well, do you have uh, any musical or recording projects in the works for the future? Um, you know, I think I've been trying to, you know, I've been trying to block it out because if I think about all the stuff that I missed out on this year, I'm going to go crazy. But um, I think that, uh, you know, most for the part now, I mean, you know, I just started doing a Broadway show called um, West Side Story. And then. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I've heard oh, that not, one. Not, not everybody knows their, every show, so I don't assume people know things. I just assume I must have said but, um, you know, West Side Story, we came back to Broadway and it's got a really cool new production. So we're kind of hoping to, to do that. We only did three months when we went to COVID. So we're just getting rolling. And um, I just started playing lead with the Count Basie Orchestra. So we've got some really cool tour things coming up and a couple of recording projects coming up with them. I'm excited about. And uh, I also play, you know, Christian McBride. You know what Christian McBride would be? Yeah, sure. So um, it was you really played, fun. Really- you, you played on his Grammy nominated album. We've actually won. We've actually won two Grammys for Christian. Yes, that's right. They, the crazy part is the Grammy part that we do as musicians. You know, as jazz musicians and well, not not the pop music. You know, of, uh, Bruno Mars part, but the other part of the Grammys that you won a Grammy for. Um, we were there with Paul Schaefer had us there with the with the Letterman band. We were on stage playing music for the Grammy Awards when um, I was I was in a in a band because uh, uh, Chuck Owen was also in the same category, and I played lead on that record as well, and so. It was like, oh gosh, you know, I want, I want both of my friends to win, but Christian wound up win, winning. So he asked Paul if I could actually just step off of stage to come and join the band and accept the, the award for the Grammy for his, uh, his I guess that was the second, the second big band record. But it was, it was kind of a cool thing to be able to, you know, talk about cool things in life. It was a cool thing to be able to do that. It was a cool thing to be able to meet President Obama at the White House and play a concert of, of Ray Charles music. Um, with Christian McBride's band at the White House. I mean, it's, it's been a lot of, a lot of really cool things, but I think that Christian always has some new stuff going on. I think we just had a record that just came out maybe two weeks ago, his last recording. So, you know, it's, it's been kind of fun. I think that, um, you know, if we can play and just have fun, I mean, isn't that the goal like we were talking about earlier? Just having, try to find ways to have fun. If it's not fun, then, you know, might as well do something else, right? Right, right. 
Well, I'm going to ask a question of you that I've asked every jazz musician I've interviewed thus far. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have a horrible answer. Every, everyone, every jazz musician gets this question. What is it that makes jazz unique in comparison to other styles of music? Mm. Well, I think, you know, depending on how you look at it, I guess the improvisatory, you know, part of it is that jazz is largely based on its ability to showcase people improvising maybe more than other musics can, can do. Um, I know that when people talk about Bach, you know, there's an element of that with Bach and other composers, but, you know, I think that, um, I want to say the feeling, but, you know, we, we both know that there, you, you can snap your fingers to all kinds of music, so I wouldn't even say that it's that. Maybe it's roots, maybe, and I think the fact that it allows for people to have so much personal expression, you know, I, I would say that I would say it's, com it's not completely completely improvisatory because, you know, we tend to play the things that we've worked on and heard and things like that. So we're just more, it's more picking and choosing what to put in the space than just com completely coming up with things that, you know, are com completely new. But I think maybe that's what it is. It's, it's the ability to have a connectivity, especially live jazz with the audience, where there's, um, this is what I'm thinking about right now. It's not written down. You know, and, it, and it's in response to, it's in the response to you. I see you look at me and look at you and it makes mm -hmm. me think of something and you're hearing the music that comes from that connectivity right now. You know? Yeah. That, that's why live music, I think is so great because, you know, the, you know, you look at someone like Roy Hargrove, he would, he would look at Clark Terry, better example, Clark Terry would see someone in the audience that was really into what he was doing and he'd play, he'd actually play to them. Hmm. It's like, well, you know, I'm playing for everyone else as well, but you're, you're giving me such great energy that I'm going to, I'm going to throw some of that energy right back to you. And we're going to have that, that relationship right here. And I think that's the cool thing about live jazz. Wow. That's, that's great. Well, that's Frank, my bad answer. <laughs> well, no, I think that's a great answer. I, I do. Uh, and I was, you know, I, uh, I think we can trying to define jazz or trying to point out why jazz is the great music it is you know, it, it kind of always goes back to that, uh, that old allegory about the seven blind men and the elephant. I mean, you're going to get seven different descriptions. <laughs> you dig? Yeah. <laughs> because the music can mean something a little bit different to, to every, everyone. But I think that your answer has been, has been uh, very congruent with others. Hmm. Not that that, you know, but, and uh, certainly I don't disagree with that thing you've said. I, you know, you wouldn't, I wouldn't debate with you one iota about, about the freedom aspect and the connectivity. Um, so I think that's, that's an awesome way to, to, to think about it. Well, Frank, is there anything else you'd like to add or to tell my audience because I have not asked you about it? Well, maybe I might only add one thing is that you and I have talked about briefly, which is how lucky we were to be at a school where you know, like we we're talking about where it was a competitive situation, but we weren't really competing like cutthroat with each other. We were just competing to just do what, the things we wanted to do. And I think, um, man, I'm so lucky that we were there. Cause I remember I, I said to you, I used to come hear you play at rehearsal, man. It was really great. Um, because you know, you, you, you weren't phoning it in. You were, you were playing. I mean, you were playing what you had in you to play that day. And it was always very intent. It was always very fun to hear you play be able to almost share in that intention because I just happen to be sitting there listening to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, and I, I recall those days very fondly because um, it helped 
it helped make it, like I said, it's all about connectivity. Just being around players like you at school was that connectivity made everything, everything else sort of made sense. If that, if that, if that kind of comes together the way I mean it, everything kind of made sense because there's no real difference between how Steve Rensler played the lead book in the one o'clock and how you played a recital. Because it was all about connectivity. It wasn't really about the idioms or the styles. Or, Mm-hmm. So I'm very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to know you, you know, because of our times together. So well, I take I, I take that as a very high compliment. Thank you. Yes, my pleasure. Well, Frank, thank you so much for All taking right, Frank, time great, to talk with to me talk today. To for sure, great to talk to you. I uh, I uh, all the best uh, to you with uh, with what I'm sure will be continued a successful musical future, and I'll continue to follow your various exploits as your recordings are released and, and, uh, and, and all that goes on. And I, you know, as I've told other people, uh, probably the greatest uh, accolade I feel is I'm proud to say that I'm your friend. And so I want to again, thank you and have a great rest of your day. Thanks you too. Thanks Craig. You bet. My discovery composer this week is Leopold Kozluks, born 1747, died 1818. A Bohemian composer, pianist, music teacher, and publisher. He studied music at Velvary and Prague. After the success of his first ballets and pantomimes, he abandoned his law studies for a career as a musician. He went to Vienna in 1778 and established himself as an excellent pianist, music teacher, and composer. Kozluk was one of the foremost representatives of Czech music in 18th century Vienna. As a composer, he devoted himself almost exclusively to secular music, his chief interest being piano music, but also he wrote nearly as much symphonic and vocal music. Most of his ballets, and all but one of his operas, are lost. Kozluk's output may fall into three stylistic divisions. The gallant style of the Viennese Rococo, and found in his songs and ariettas. The piano concertos and symphonies used the normal expressive language of the Viennese classic style of the 18th and early 19th century, and several of his piano and chamber works presage Romanticism. The All Music Guide lists numerous recordings of Kozluk's symphonies, concertos, chamber music, and vocal music for you to discover. Take time to listen to the music of this somewhat overlooked master. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of an album sampler of Kozluk's Piano Concertos 1, 5, and 6 from a recording by Howard Shelley and the London Mozart Players. That wraps episode number 8. My show notes, along with the links to artist websites, recording label websites, 
YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing Boston-based blues singer and guitarist Aaron Harp. On December 29th, the podcast will include an interview with New York-based drummer, bandleader, composer, and arranger Dan Pugach. Other upcoming shows will include interviews with country singer-songwriter George Shingleton and Milwaukee area-based jazz baritone saxophonist and ichthyologist Dr. Michael Powers. So don't you dare touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. Thank you.